you know, one of my golfers, Cam Smith, performed well at, at the British Open one. He went and got his water bottle from his caddy, went to have a sip of water and nearly choked to death on international TV because he was so anxious that his throat wouldn't even swallow, right? But what was he? He was behaviourally consistent. He was nervous, but he was okay being nervous. Was he in a state of flow? No, he was in a state of heightened anxiety, but he was very task focused and very consistent in what he was committing to do, despite the intensity of the emotion. Hello and welcome to the Mission Middle. I'm your host, Andrew Horsfield. Thanks to those of you who have recently sent messages of thanks, support, or encouragement regarding the podcast. It's great to know the guests I'm talking to and the content that we're covering is helping you find better ways to work, lead and live. And please, if you feel inclined, leave a review or share an episode within your network so we can broaden the listenership and enhance the impact of the podcast. Your support really does make a difference. Okay, on to this month's episode. What are you like at handling pressure? Staying calm in those moments when you feel most worried, anxious, even angry. If you feel you could benefit from more calmness and composure when things get a little chaotic, you're really going to love this conversation with Jonah Oliver. Jonah's one of the world's leading performance psychologists who uses his training in both sports psychology and neuroscience to help people fulfil their potential on the biggest stage. Over the past decade, he's worked with a variety of clients from Olympic athletes to professional golfers, AFL teams and performing artists, as well as entrepreneurs and surgeons. In this conversation, we discuss what pressure is and the most common reasons why we experience pressure. Jonah also dispels some common myths about how we're told to handle pressure and shares a variety of practical strategies that will help you perform at your peak. Through the metaphors and examples Jonah uses to bring psychological theory to life, this conversation was both informative and entertaining. It's time to listen and learn from performance psychologist Jonah Oliver. Jonah, welcome to The Messy Middle. Given your experience, which will obviously no doubt go into as part of the podcast conversation. I'm really excited about this conversation with you and how people listening can improve their mental performance. So welcome. It's it's great to have you on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Look, I think it's a good start, if not a, a fairly typical one, just to get a little bit of your genesis story about, you know, as a mental performance coach, what is it that you do and how did you get to where you are now? Uh, wow, a little wind the clock back a bit there. Um, did a lot of study, uh, went to university, became a registered psychologist and began my journey working in sport primarily. But in terms of where my career really took off, it was when I retrained. So when I went through my tertiary education, there was very traditional approaches to psychology and performance. And you know, we'll get into that maybe during the course of this talk, but a lot of it was around controlling anxiety, being more confident, positive thinking, um, getting rid of the bad, you know, like trying to get these athletes mm. into this ideal performance state. And then thankfully, uh, about 18, 20 years ago, 
some new science emerged that said maybe that's fundamentally the wrong approach and it's about learning to make room for discomfort and thoughts and emotions and not trying to control them. And it's called acceptance and commitment therapy. So, again, we can dig into the theory of that in a bit. But I retrained. Yeah. I retrained. And, and it changed my life. It changed my professional trajectory because I started getting really meaningful change in my clients even though I was still really very wet behind the ears. You mentioned really early on about curiosity and the role that that plays in in any level of performance from your perspective. You know, I, I do a lot of work around values as well. And, you know, one of my core values, unsurprisingly, is curiosity. You know, I have, I have you know, mastery, curiosity, playfulness and value in there. So they're my four fundamental values that shape my life. And for me, you know, I've looked backwards and learned that that was something that I just probably had in me from a very young age, thanks to my upbringing and experiences, and and that's what I love bringing to life. Yeah, good one. And and look, we're going to explore this a lot deeper as we have our or evolve our conversation. But I think one of the things that I'm really interested from your perspective is when we talk about performance and peak performance or or performance in in moments that matter. There's also this shadow side of of all the things that we try that that actually don't have any impact, you know, the superstitions. Could you maybe share some of the things that with good intention people do but doesn't have any real impact in terms of a behavioural science or neuroscience to, to improve performance? I'd really be interested in your thoughts on that. There's a lot. I do a lot around debunking myths, right? There's a lot. I try to keep it quite simple. I sort of say it's, it's not about reducing stress and pressure. It's about building capacity to embrace more. It's not about motivating. It's about connecting to what matters. And it's not about positive thinking. It's about taking positive action no matter what you feel. And if we then go back to that again and unpack that at a deeper level, mm. it's not about reducing stress and pressure. It's about building capacity to embrace more. If we think about all of the interventions in the world of psychology or pop psychology or life coaching or self-help books or all the stuff that's out there, right, so much of it is about trying to get rid of the unwanted experience, how to be calm, how to be more positive, how to get rid of those negative self-talk, how to, you know, improve your self-esteem, how to, you know, stop worrying and be more, it's like all about trying to remove this, you know, tough internal experience. But if you actually understand the neuroscience of your brain and understand that the deep parts of your brain, right near where your heart beats, your breath works, you know, things that there's a reason when you get knocked unconscious, you still breathe and your heart beats, right? They're protected because they're deep central parts of your brain. The deeper it is within your brain, the more primitive it is, the more primal it is, the more it doesn't matter. You can't think your heart to stop. Use all your thoughts to stop your heart. You can't do that. But the fear center of your brain is sitting right in there next to your, you know, emotions and memories, really deep. But our, our, our surface areas, our frontal, prefrontal cortex is where we have conscious control of thoughts and what have you. So all these techniques that are around thought control, thought stopping, thought replacement, positive self-talk with keywords actually don't work to overcome these deep central parts of your brain like the amygdala, which is the fear centers. So 
rather than that, and, 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 and I should say even further, once you try to engage in that control or fight, you fail. And I always say to my clients, if you've been trained up and deeply believe you need to control your thinking, control your anxiety, get rid of it when it shows up, replace it with something else, you then try to do it in these moments that matter because it's really important that you do or you think you might fail at the event. But we then fail psychologically to overcome those fearful feelings and thoughts and then we catch fire because we're trying to do something that actually defies our neuroanatomy, but we believe we need to or we're going to underperform. So now I'm worried about my worry or I have this metacognitive awareness that I'm not getting myself to this state and two things happen. One, we end up panicking because we're worried about our worry. So that's, that's what a panic attack is. It's a metacognitive panic attack. Secondly, we've completely hijacked our focus. There's three other podcasts just in that answer you've given, so thank you because I think people reflecting will, will get a lot out of that. It gives me a stack of questions to ask, and one of them is around how do we make friends with those emotions? Yeah, great question, and there's a few elements to it. Great question. Firstly, we need to start with what we call as workability. So just simply reflect upon what you have done in the past to beat, suppress, control, run away from, you know, those internal experiences and have any worked in the long term, you know. So I do a lot of work before even jumping into some of the specifics of techniques around just interrogating the workability because if the client doesn't see it as futile, then you're probably not going to make much progress. So Mm -hmm. you have to come to a stand of, Jonah, I've tried deep breathing keywords, positive self-talk, progressive muscle relaxation, you know, imagery scripts, you know, whatever, lighting incense, my lucky jocks, my lucky socks, my, you know, uh, I've done all that. Yeah. And I say, yep, and how's that working for you? Yeah, well, it goes okay sometimes, but then when, you know, the preliminary final or the grand final or at the, at the major or at the US Open, I always, you know, underperform. So it's right. So, you know, with sufficient pressure, you know, it often falls down. So I always, you know, test the workability so they understand that maybe I'm open to trying something different. The second is I say, let's just talk about adrenaline for a moment. Increases our visual acuity, increases our reaction time, increases our fatigue tolerance, increases our auditory perception, heightens virtually all of the major senses in our body. It just energizes our body ready to act. But the downside is it makes us feel a little bit, you know, sick in the stomach and butterflies and we might have a bit of impoverished sleep and, you know, it doesn't necessarily feel nice at times. I get that. But it's a wonder drug and I've never met an athlete who probably doesn't get that relationship where they say, I love the, I love all the good things it gives me, Jonah, but I just don't want the, the tough stuff. Mm. <laughs> it's like, well, maybe we need to learn to see it as just, you know, the price of entry is it comes with that. And then the cognitive component is learning to see them, see your thoughts and memories and feelings as highly predictable, firstly. So if I get a whiteboard and get all my clients to write down some of their worries, anxieties and fears, and they'll give me a lovely big list, you know, if it's a surgeon, it's making an error. If it's a, an Olympian, it's stuffing up on the biggest stage. If it's, you know, it doesn't matter the context. Mm-hmm. And I say, how many, 
how many years have you been having those thoughts? And I'll say without fail, <laughs> since I've been a kid generally, yeah. um, or since I first started this profession, right? So what's the likelihood it's going to show up next weekend when we go out to the MCG or go to the Olympics or, you know, yeah, you're going to the surgical theatre? Oh, yeah, pretty likely. I said, no, no, you just lied. What's the percentage? Mm. Oh, 100%, 100%, right, correct answer. So if it's 100% likely, you know, it's 100% rate that it's going to show up, shouldn't we actually get ready for it, prepare for it, and learn to just sort of, you know, have a different relationship to it? So instead of fearing those thoughts and hoping some magical potion will come about that they don't show up, let go of that struggle and just see them as the price of entry. I worry about things I care about. My brain will orientate to fear and threat when there's something on the line. And you know what? That's okay. And if I can learn to just say, thanks, brain, yep, just my thoughts, just my chatter, you know, give it a name even, <laughs> you know, about time it showed up, and just get un- be able to, we call it diffusion, diffuse from those thoughts, make room for them, it literally frees up my prefrontal frontal cortex to be task engaged. Yeah, it's a, that's a really nice point in it, itself, the work that's required to actually perform. Because we, we often get sold that, well, you're in the flow and it's so easy and it's effortless and it's, and I'm sure that there is a, a, a state where we're in that. But I sort of feel that when we, we get told these things of how good they are and we celebrate the champions when they're playing well, that we feel like there's some superpower that, that we don't have that they have. And so it's not as difficult or complicated or complex beyond what you're explaining as some starting points for people. Absolutely. And I love what you just said because it's, it's, it's the most common misinterpretation in, in the high-performance space is that the average punter sitting on the couch watching uh, an athlete perform, they look calm, confident, and positive, and therefore they assume that that's their internal experience. And mm. our kids do it with us as parents because we're a little bit better at not acting on our emotion maybe. So they think that we don't feel stress or worry or guilt or, you know, fraudulency syndrome or any of that. And they just think, oh, there must be something wrong with them. But, like, even reporters, I mean, you know, I, I, I laugh when a, a, a reporter recently asked, you know, one of my golfers, Cam Smith, performed well at, at you know, the British Open one. And... Oh, Cam, you, know, you look so calm and confident, you know, out there and you can see him roll his eyes, just complete eye roll. Like, <laughs> he couldn't even swallow water down the final five holes. It, you know, the, and I can say it's just humorous mm. and he's, he's okay with me sharing it. Like he, mm. he went and got his water bottle from his caddy, went to have a sip of water and nearly choked to death on international TV because he was so anxious <laughs> that his throat wouldn't even yeah. swallow, right? But what was it? He was behaviourally consistent. He was nervous, but he was okay being nervous because we've done all the work about embracing that. Um, was he in a state of flow? No, he was in a state of heightened anxiety, but he was very task-focused and very consistent in what he was committing to do despite the intensity of the emotion. Tell me if, if I'm hearing you correctly, there's a difference there between sort of confidence and competence, you know, that confidence of, oh, today's my day, uh, the weather's great, the conditions are good, I've performed against this opposition before or I've socially tested this idea internally and I know if I pitch this it's going to get ahead versus just the person who can still step into the difficulty, 
sort of feeling like their competence or the skills they have will get them through no matter what questions are thrown or conditions. Is that a difference that I hear you talking about now of that consistency? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I love that you've got the right language there. It is literally distinguishing confidence from competence. And, you know, confidence is how I feel. Competence is that I have the ability to do the task. And coaches, parents, teachers, ourselves, we get it wrong every day. You know, we think we want a confident athlete, but actually what we want is a competent athlete. Mm. Now, some days it's both. You're confident and you're competent and out you go and it feels quite easy. When you're not confident, it's harder because your brain might get a little bit in the way. Therefore, you do have to do something to make room for that you know, story or chatter or noise in the brain about not being confident, but just come back to your competency of I can do this. I always use the same playful metaphor. Me with six beers at a karaoke bar, Mm. it doesn't matter how confident I am, I still can't sing. Yeah, but you'll still get up and get there. (laughs) And I'll get up there and be terrible. Yeah. Right? What you want is somebody who can actually sing. Now I'd still rather somebody who can really sing who might be a little bit nervous not having the confidence and just say, hey, listen, it's okay to be nervous. You know, that's all right. Just make room for those nerves. But how about you just focus on singing the song like you normally do? And I'd much rather listen to that person than me with six beers in my belly. I think that's a terrific distinction about turning up when it matters and backing the ability. There's nothing that my clients are doing on these world stages that they haven't done before. It's not about Superman and lifting to some magical place. Adrenaline, the occasion, sometimes brings out, you know, super you know, unique performances, but that's only by not chasing it. It's replication. Oh, what do you say to those guys or girls before they go out on the bigger stage? Okay, go out there and be really boring. Do your usual. It's just replicating your competency in a stage where there's a lot of emotion. So it's often the world's best don't lift, it's that they're the ones that change the least while those around them do get caught up in the context. Yeah. It's a a really great distinction, Jonah. I I love a quote, Jim Carrey, the American comedian, I don't know if you've heard his quote, but he said, oh, the problem with life is there's no danger music. You know, we don't have that musical score that would go, dun it, dun it, when we're in one of those moments to go, okay, hang on, I'm being called to something here, I'm about to stuff something up or... And I I sort of think we do. I think that feeling that you said before about the butterflies or the tension or the nervous or they're all those, I think, that danger music that we can all pay attention to to say, okay, is this a moment that matters enough to me to step into or do I not worry about this one? When that fear stuff shows up, isn't it amazing how our brains orientate initially to that fear and wanting to do something to get rid of it? But if we can pivot and instead connect to what's important. What's actually at stake here? And that's why I said, you know, it's not about motivating people, it's about connecting them to what matters. Otherwise, fear will always win. It's a really primal driver in our brain. We'll know what we want to do. You know, every every athlete comes off the field and knows what they wanted to do. They're just disappointed that they didn't do it. And it's because typically they were just connecting to their fear story versus actually what was important out there to do. We often focus on how hard something is, how boring something is, how scary something is, how embarrassing something might be, how disappointed I might feel. It's all about the the emotional component versus 
what's actually important here and what's actually the upside of me leaning into that. Yeah. So for me to help people perform on those bigger stages, I often focus far less on their intrinsic emotional state and rather try to dial up their connection to the importance. And how do you separate that from the, well, my importance is to win the tournament or my importance is to get the gold medal versus what you were saying before, which is sort of that behavioural executable. Is there a way that you help people separate to find that right purpose so it doesn't just reignite another set of problems? Yeah, awesome question. Firstly, you don't avoid the outcome. Like you don't, you don't fly all the way to Nepal not to climb Mount Everest. Like you, you don't, you're not going there to play with some rocks. You, you're allowed to say, I'm here to climb Mount Everest. So you're allowed to say, I want to win the gold medal. I want to win the, the major golf tournament. I want to pitch the product to, you know, like you're allowed to absolutely put out to the world the outcome you're there to achieve. But to your, to your question, how do you then get them back to being focused on the right thing, not just the fusion with the fear of failing at that outcome? Let's continue that metaphor of climbing Mount Everest. If I'm just focused on getting to the to the summit, I'm pretty likely to then fall in the crevasse along the way because I'm not actually looking at what's in front of me, right? Mm-hmm. And if, if I also said, why do you want to climb Mount Everest? Generally, most people are really passionate mountain climbers who say, I just want to see how good I can be against the biggest challenge there is. It looks like it's going to be really hard, challenging, intimidating, and I feel like my skill level is at a level where I want to have that dance. And I'm like, wow, sounds like this is just an experience to really dial up your values and bring them to life, right? And so it's where you realize that most things in life that are challenging can be a vehicle for values expression, right, values in action. And so now I can set my target on climbing Mount Everest, but I'm saying I'm coming here because I want to do something really hard that stretches me. And I've got values of adventure, curiosity, perseverance, and, you know, whatever. And therefore I'm going to really dial into that and just see if I can be the best version of myself as I really focus on this one section of the mountain and then the next little section and the next session, even though I know I'm still chasing the apex. So it's, it's not about one or the other. It's not binary. It's about saying we chase outcomes, but if you can connect to your values and see that really challenging, lofty mm-hmm. outcomes can be a vehicle for the expression of your, of your values, then you literally have it all. You, you've got a values congruent life while still chasing outcomes. How do, you, how do you separate that feel okay with the feelings versus go back to where the feelings come from because it's a deeper-seated issue or a narrative that won't go away? So I'm finding it fascinating about how you unlock all these little bits of obstacles that we sometimes self-propagate. And so we've also got the advantage of saying, well, if it's our own propagation of those, we can also take them on and change them. I think it's a fascinating conversation. Yeah, it's... And it's really important. It's changed the relationship to them. It's not changed them. Just for a moment, Bar Bar Black, Mary had a little, Humpty Dumpty sat on her. Now, I guess that most of your listeners just had some words pop into their brain because it's a nursery rhyme they learned when they were young and they haven't forgotten it. So why would we forget when I hopped up in English class, I stuttered and made a fool of myself. 
My dad said that I'm never going to amount to something. When I look in the mirror and I see my body shape, I have some story about how I think I look. Like these are stories that are well entrenched in our memory and our brain is designed not to forget things. I don't walk up to a lion a second time and think, oh, are you friendly or dangerous? Like our brain is designed to remember things and keep that memory. Yet we somehow believe through maybe some poorly executed or articulated pop psych that we need to change our core beliefs, change our memories, change the way, like it's, it's about change the relationship to them. Just because I have some nursery rhymes from my past doesn't need to define what my life currently or in the future looks like. So it's expecting those nursery rhymes to show up in certain contexts but seeing them as just that. Thanks, brain. Just my chatter. Thanks, brain. Yeah, about time it showed up. Oh, there's a bit of that stuff. Thanks. You know, just disarm it, but then make a decision towards or away move. Mm. An away move is getting hooked by that story and then behaving in a way because of it, not speaking up at the team meeting, not pitching the idea to the to the investor, not telling your wife what you really think, not you know, kicking the ball, you know, through the line in the grand final for fear of stuffing the kick, whatever, right? It just doesn't matter what the avoided behaviour is. It's yeah. I'm changing my behaviour because of my relationship to that story of my past versus what would a towards move look like? Okay, me, my values, my values expressed as explicit behaviours, that's the best version of myself, that's the person I am and who I want to be into the future. So can I just make room for that story of my past but not be defined by it, rather use my values as my anchor? Yeah, on the course of a, a competition or a tournament or a meeting that might go for two hours, you know, we can't have this full-on mental capacity for all of that period. So I'm just wondering, are there ways that you help people identify those moments that are more important or more pivotal or rather than have to sustain this mental cognition for, for, for a long period of time, which we, we know just isn't um, reliable. Our, our attention is relatively short, right? So yeah, first thing, our attention span is relatively short. Secondly, we never lose focus. We simply shift focus. You know, you, don't, you only lose focus when you're unconscious, Right. Other than that, you, you just your attention is just going somewhere else, right? And our mind wanders a lot. So the technique is, you know, to truly be mindful. People think being really present and really mindful is like me just tuning into you and nothing else entering my brain. Well, as you and I have been having this conversation, our minds have both wandered many times. What allows me to attend to you is... I recognize when I've wandered relatively quickly and just bring myself back. So, you know, task-focused attention is about staying focused in, in the present with, you know, on purpose in a very curious way and really engaging in the task at hand. If that's listening to somebody, solving a puzzle, thinking about this next chip shot in the golf course, whatever it is, right? But during the course of that, at some point, my mind will wander. And if I can just catch it when it's wandered and come back to the important task, then I normally experience greater task-focused attention, but it's actually characterized by focusing, drifting, and coming back. So that's firstly understanding just how our attention works. And then obviously single-tasking, not multitasking. There's no such thing as multitasking. So how can I 
just focus on what's important um, versus trying to do multiple things at the same time. There's always a switching cost as we go from task to task to task, even rapidly, there's a switching cost and that's where you get a lot of that fatigue. So, you know, um, I certainly don't, you know, the idea, pay attention to the next hour in this meeting. That's crazy. Just doesn't, it just defies neuroscience. You know, it should be actually broken up into short little, you know, bursts where we can actually just stop, take a moment, come back. Yeah. Tell me, does, does pressure scale in the sense that is the, the pressure that Cameron Smith would feel standing over a putt to win the Open be the same as I felt two days ago getting the kids out the door on time without their wheat bix all over there themselves and things of time frames that we've got to get them out for a certain time? Is that the same sort of pressure and we just have to deal with it or is it is it very different? Yeah, great question and so relatable. I can certainly relate to that myself. Um, it's literally the meaning behind it. You know, we worry about things we care about and for some for some people the pressure of standing up at your mate's wedding and giving that best man speech is as terrifying, if not more, than Cam standing over that putt on the 18th because of their relationship to fear, their story, their past experience, what they feel competent at, you know. Um, and their ability to make room for it. So, you know, was Cam nervous as all heck on the 18th? Of course he was. But was he really clear in what he was going to do? And had he learned to make room for his anxiety? Yes, he had. Was he focused on, once he'd read the part, just the speed of the part? Yeah, so he had one thing to focus on. So his experience was he was highly task-focused, even though his heart rate was probably high. So, you know, he, he, he's got some skills in that space that we've, we've done together. Whereas maybe, you know, the other person going to the, the wedding and having to stand up and they've not really done much public speaking before, they're going to feel really, you know, in the deep end and outside their zone of competence. Therefore, they might actually have a stronger fear-based story, even though it feels like it's relatively easier compared to playing golf in front of the world, right? So it's all, it's all relative to what it means to you. Yeah, and one of the themes I, I hear you talking you know, a lot about is, is all just normalizing things and being a little bit calm and kind to ourselves and and normalizing some of the things that we're feeling as opposed to getting tangled in it. Is is that part of the trick of all, all this of being able to perform and enjoy life and enjoy what we do because we're going to hit those difficult moments is just being a little bit calm and easier on ourselves? A hundred percent. It, the very fundamental um, premise of psychological flexibility is learning to accept the human brain for what it is. There's nothing wrong with you if you feel angry. There's nothing wrong if you feel anxious. There's nothing wrong with you if you have doubt or worry. It, if you're then not living the life you want to, if you're taking drugs or drinking to suppress those feelings, if you're not pursuing a career that you want to do because of, like, then that's the problem. That's the dysfunction. Mm. The dysfunction's in the behavioural consequence, not the actual presence of those internal experiences. And so it's really important to distinguish that, you know, psychological ill health isn't tough internal emotions and thoughts and feelings. It's do I let that define the actions I take? And so what helps me free myself up from that is firstly understanding that we all experience that. You're not 
broken or damaged for feeling or thinking that way. Those superheroes you see on TV feel and think that way. They just don't let it affect what they do because I've learned to normalise it, to your words, exactly. And and is that something people can practice? I, I know um, you mentioned about mindfulness before and I think people see mindfulness as sort of the listening to the app on the train in the way into work or, you know, finding a two weeks away or a, on a holiday or a retreat somewhere where they sit by a pool and eat healthily and then do all that sort of stuff. Where what I'm hearing you say is there is a bit more about an awareness as opposed to just that mindfulness of tuning out versus almost like tuning in. There's, again, there's this, uh, well, I won't get into the commercial arm of all the products being sold around the world at the moment promoting um, so-called mindfulness, but I'd argue they're promoting experiential avoidance. And what I mean by that is, you know, trying to get rid of your stress is experiential avoidance. You're saying stress is bad, I need to get rid of it. You know, deep breathing, transcendental meditation, you know, relaxation retreats, going away to the hinterland of Byron Bay, doing all those things. And, you know, six weeks later, what does everyone say? I need to go on another retreat. Um, Whereas mindfulness has no interest in changing your internal experience. It's not about anxiety reduction. It's not about removal of thoughts or feelings. It's about choosing to bring my attention into the present on purpose non-judgmentally noticing something and just doing that, then my mind will wander, coming back. And through time, we strengthen these neural pathways, primarily, you know, the, the relationship to amygdala, anterior cingulate gyrus, prefrontal, frontal cortex, all the areas that are involved in, you know, emotional regulation and focus, and they strengthen, which then allows us to be present in the presence of distracting things, whether that be crowd or internal things like our thoughts and feelings. So mindfulness is simply noticing things in the present on purpose and not chasing any alternate state. Now, sometimes if I've done some mindfulness, I might feel relaxed. Oh, wow, that's the secondary gain, not the primary gain. Whereas if I'm sitting here going, okay, Jonah, you've told me I've got to embrace my anxiety. I've got to make room for those thoughts. I've just got to see them as, you know, just thoughts. They don't need to define what I do. Yeah, cool, great. And then as I'm about to walk into the boardroom or into the Olympic arena, I do a whole bunch of deep breathing to run away, get rid of my anxiety and try to calm down. I've literally done something counter indicative to that very notion of acceptance. Whereas I can still do the same looking type breath work, except instead of trying to run away from the anxiety, it's okay, I'm nervous, it's the Olympics, that's okay, about time showed up, and now I'll do some breath work to just bring my attention into the present so I can then think about connecting to my technical cues or whatever I'm about to go out and do, I've now gone through the right process of embracing what shows up, being present and then committing to the right behaviours. I'm wondering about people listening who are saying, look, this is all terrific, but I'm overwhelmed because I've got kids, I've got my career, I'm trying to sustain some sort of level of, you know, fitness and health, which I'm failing in miserably because I'm doing all these other things. Are the techniques you're talking about contextual so that you can be where you are and use a technique for the thing you're working on, or is there something 
that you could offer people who are just feeling overwhelmed by the sense of trying to do everything in lots of domains? Yeah, well, you've probably just shared the challenge of most of the listeners, right? You can run a really successful business or be a world-class athlete and have a healthy body, have good relationships with the people that matter and nurture some of your interests and hobbies and what have you. You just have to be really intentional in what you do. You have to architect your life. You have to take the time to think a bit about what that's going to look like and you have to do things in a values-based way. You don't take your kids to the park and say, see, told you, darling, I bloody took them to the park. What's the, what's the problem? You, know? you take them to the park and you get on your knees and you be mm. playful and curious and, and, and connected and that's what your kids care about. They don't care about whether they went to the park or not. They care about the version of you that showed up. Um, you know, if you, I, don't, I haven't gone running around the, for ages because I can't find 45 minutes in my day to go for a run. Well, lower the bar so low you can't fail. Go for a five-minute run and at least just keep the momentum going and nurture, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So for me, I don't think we're really thriving in life unless we're nurturing the domains of importance. But will we have stress, pressure, doubt, worry, uncertainty show up in all those domains? Uh, unless you don't have a brain, you will because you're a human. What about you would often, I assume, go into an existing team framework? What are some of the things that you do or feel are important to integrate into those successfully so you can have the impact that you're being engaged to do? Sometimes I'm just working with a couple of racing car drivers who are all a part of a bigger team or maybe I'm working with a captain, vice captain of an AFL club, but I'm not working with the whole footy team. Um, so yeah, absolutely. Well, for me, I'm I'm just very big on reverse engineering, right? Like, what's the actual problem we're here to solve? Like, uh, a classic cliche is ambiguity is the enemy. Oh, Jonah, I heard you worked with some guys and had some good outcomes, so I just thought maybe you could help me play better. <laughs> it's like <laughs> I, I don't even know what you mean by that. Like, let's 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 just keep going. Let's peel that onion back with some Socratic questioning and and get right into what are we truly looking at here? And so once I spend the time with senior management or the board or a CEO or a coach and an athlete, like it's interrogated until we're crystal clear on what we're trying to dial up or what behavior we're trying to remove. So it could be, you know, stopping doing certain things or doing more of other things. Um, Then normally we look at what's getting in the way. I want to work on my leadership. What a lovely generic broad word that no one can actually define. Mm. Okay, sure. Like, well, let's talk about what, what does leadership mean in this context? Oh, well, it's making, you know, good, concise decisions. It's communicating. It's making sure people, you know, understand their role and, and, and be the quarterback to them, whatever, right? Okay, great. So now we've sort of defined what it is and where it is and what it isn't. And then what gets in the way? Oh, when I'm really frustrated or I'm not playing well, my own perfectionism shows up and I get caught up in that. Then I feel like I can't really start telling the the guys where to run and and go because I'm thinking that I'm not really leading through my own individual out, blah, 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 blah. Okay, so you've got some, you know, a story around your self-criticalness and your perfectionism and so then I'll do some work with the athlete about that relationship in the service of their, you know, leadership showing up on the MCG in front of 100,000 people, you know, or if it's a surgeon, it's, you know, being a little bit more committed to the 
appropriate decisions in that surgery versus being too caught up in my fear story around I don't want to make an error. So, you know, I might leave a little bit more of that tumour in because I just don't want to go too close to that, you know, blood supply, you know, whatever. So you just see the the avoidant behaviour. So to answer your question, what's the actual puzzle we're trying to solve? Don't accept ambiguity. Get really, really granular and then my job is to work around what is the psychological factors that are contributing to that, you know, uh, underperformance, and then normally that's a way. Now, if the organisation's got a strategy and some values and some behaviours and a clear, clear roadmap, then that's easier too because then you can look at the, the relationship to, to how I help those individuals, you know, perform in a, an aligned manner to that. And are there certain things that you look for in that engagement process about how impactful you can be or how likely it is that you're able to shift the cognitive software of the person or people you're you're working with? Yeah, I mean, one of my core values is value, right? I only want to do work where I feel I can help bring value to the client's puzzle. And so it's very much taking that time to sort of say, you know, we've we've done our formulation together. We've we've looked at what the presenting problem is. We've sort of looked at the contributing factors, and then I present. This is the type of work we'd need to do in order to bring about that change. Is that something that you're willing to do and invest in, and and what have you? And if we feel that we can work together to achieve it, then you know, let's get into that. I, I love helping solve puzzles, but if it's like, oh no, I think there's too many barriers there, or there's too much whatever, then it's it's pretty important not to jump in because. I actually think if you do half-assed psychological work and don't actually bring about change, the client is often worse off because they feel like even a psychologist can't help me, and they actually get you know they get more caught up in their in their self-deprecation. So I'm very careful that it's like if we're going to do the work, let's do it. But yeah, let's if we if we're not let's let's not sort of half-ass it because otherwise it, it actually can compound the issue. My last question was just if there's anything that you feel we haven't covered or you'd want to reinforce just for people listening to finish off who are, you know, loving what you're saying and and thinking, right, what's a couple of things I can really do to improve my mental performance? I think taking the time to reflect upon what truly matters to you, to you, not to what society thinks or your parents think or your friends, like what really matters to you and take the time to truly interrogate that because I think a lot of us live lives that are as intentional as they should be. Whereas if you stop and take the time to say, you know, what do I actually want my life to be about? What do I want my best friends or family to write on my gravestone? And it's generally not how much money I earned or how fast I ran down a track and work backwards from there. And then if there's some like, well, why aren't I pursuing those things? Generally it's, you know, something like fear, doubt, worry, feeling, you know, um, intimidated, um, some form of internal experience that gets in our way. It's like, okay, well, if you weren't having that internal experience, what would you be doing? Oh, I'd, I'd quit my job and I'd start my new business. I'd blah, blah, blah. I'd, you know, it's okay. Well, how about we actually be a bit more defined by what you want your life to be about versus what fear is telling you and getting in the way of. And then just to double down on those final three, it's, it's stop engaging in, you know, 
reducing your your stress and pressure rather can you actually build your capacity to embrace more you know if you get an injured muscle running it's because your muscle wasn't strong enough once it's repaired you generally go to the gym and the physio makes it stronger and then you can run again well psychology is the same if you're struggling with stress if you're struggling with anger if you're struggling with sadness it's not getting rid of those emotions. We've actually got to increase your ability to sit with that and not be defined by it. And then yeah. once we define what really matters to us, then often we find that it's not how hard it is, it's just how important it is. And then obviously, you know, letting go of our addiction to always having to wake up feeling good and thinking good and rather just knowing what our positive actions, you know, are and how can we be consistent in that. And and then lastly, the very last one is minimal sufficiency, and that's just I think we're in a world where we're saturated by content. You know, a lot of my clients are, Joan, I wake up at 4.30 in the morning and I do my meditation, then my journaling, then my goal setting, then I do my charity work, then I do my, you know, and it's like, what are you, what are you doing all these things for? Mm. And it's really well-intentioned. But it normally means they're just trying to find the missing piece in their life, right? And they think the answer is just to do more because they saw somebody who's famous do something <laughs> versus mm. minimal sufficiency. What's the one or two things that really move the needle in my life? You know? Yeah, terrific advice. Look, it's a great place to finish, Jonah. Thank you. It's been a thought-provoking conversation. It's lots of practical ways people can take the information and conversation that they're getting from you. I really value your time and insight and lots of ideas for people to think about how they can improve both personally and professionally in their performance. So thanks. Thanks very much. It's been brilliant. Thanks for the chat. I enjoyed it. Just a couple of things before we wrap up. If you've enjoyed this episode and think it'll be good company for your drive home, commute on the train, or even mental fuel during your daily workout, please subscribe by clicking on your preferred podcasting platform at andrewhorsefield.com forward slash podcast. And if you'd like to receive a monthly email from me with insider content, videos, white papers and some recommended reading that will help you move your mental furniture around advancing people and performance, then sign up for more content that's been curated specifically for curious minds like yours at andrewhorsefield.com forward slash contact. Thanks for listening.